This morning we're going to be walking through the Lord's Supper in Psalm 145. So as they're bringing up the house lights, if you want to look on your phone or if you want to read from the ESV and you don't have one, there is one conveniently placed in the back of the pew in front of you. That's the translation I'm going to be reading out of. If you don't have a Bible, you can feel free to take that home uh, with you today. You can consider that a souvenir from your visit this morning. You know, we have been going through uh, the Gospel of John doing the Lord's Supper together. And as we were going through and looking at the things that Ridgecrest did at its 25th anniversary, we recognized that Bob Hamilton took the church through Psalm 145. I thought, what a fitting passage for us to look at 25 years later. And so if you were able to come yesterday to the 50th anniversary celebration, then, then you were able to, to see this kind of great continuation of faith that thing which was started 50 years ago, God, through his faithfulness, has caused to persevere, caused to endure over time. So this morning, we turn once again to God's faithful and true word to see what it would say to us today, how it would call upon us to, to surrender our lives in the same way it has been calling on us to surrender our lives since it was written, and for some of us, since the 25 years ago when Bob Hamilton laid it out there for you to hear and then today, how are we continuing to live our lives in submission to this true and enduring word of God? Psalm 145, we're going to look at it in two parts. We'll go 1 through 13, and then we'll go 14 through 21. So let's give our attention uh, to 1 through 13. You know, the amazing thing as I went through and, and studied this passage this week is just coming away and for somebody who has kind of vocationally given themselves to the study of God's Word, uh, we were, I hadn't really added up how many years I've, I've been studying and, you know, master's level work, PhD work, until Valerie and I went this weekend to look at uh, getting a new car, and the guy said, how many, how many years of, of education do you have? And I said, you know, it's bad when you run out of, hand, like, fingers on your hands. I said, let's just say a lot. Is there a, is there a line for that? But one of the things that really stuck with me as I'm reading through this and, and all of the years I've worked my master's, worked my PhD, the greatness of God, we're never able to really grasp it, to put it in a box and to, and to fully recognize it for all that it is. In each and every encounter we have with God and his greatness, his complete and utter transcendence, that he's wholly other, right? That he's not some some animal to be tamed, that he's not something common to be readily understood, but that he is wholly other, wholly unique, and each and every encounter with him leads us just to be laid low, right? It, it, it leaves us, what, with this desire to worship him all the more because he is so incredibly worthy of our adoration and our praise, and, and that's what the Psalms does for us. In 1 through 13, he shows us just how great and how mighty and how amazing God is. And each and every time he does it, he turns around and he just worships him. He turns around and he worships him. So the call before us today, that as we approach this God who is wholly other, who is wholly transcendent, high and exalted and far beyond us. And we are ordinary. We are plain. We are fallen. That each and every encounter with that God calls on us for one appropriate response. It's not the familiarity of, oh, I knew that. Oh, I already understood that. But it's to bow before this God and to worship him with every fiber of our being. 
not in some approach of stoicism that he is to be held off for, but this warm embrace that he pulls us into, the familiarity that he calls us to enjoy with him, but at the same time, this reverential awe where we stand before a holy God and say, we will worship you and you alone. Let's see this together. Look how he opens it up. He says, I will extol you, my God and King, and I will bless your name forever. Verse 2, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. He starts off and he says, I will lift you up. I mean, this is what we do to people we celebrate, right? So you win, you win a game, and you grab someone, and you hoist them up in the air. This is what we do with triumphant leaders when they come back from war. We grab them, we hold them up, we idolize them, we put them forward. This is what he says he's doing to God. He says, great are you, Lord. I extol you. I lift you up. I lift you up. Our encounters with God don't drive us to some type of just, you know, run-of-the-mill experience, but they cause us to lift him up, to lift him up in our lives, to lift him up in the way that we speak. And so he moves to this next encounter. He says, I lift you up. I extol the Lord, and I bless your name forever and ever. Some of your translations, they use the word worship, and that's what he's getting at here. He says, I lift your name up. I'm worshiping you, and through the position that I set you in, but then also he comes and he says, I worship you. Now, the word he's using here, this is the picture it paints. Some encounters we come into through worship, he says, I lift my hands and I, and I bow my head before you, or I lift my eyes up to the heavens. And this is the position of worship occasionally described in Scripture. But do you know what position he describes here in this passage? It's this. It's kneeling before God. This is the position that he finds himself in because this is how he recognizes God in this deal. He says, God, I lift you up. I extol your name. And I worship you. From this position of worship, he's not lifting himself up. He's not fooled into believing that he is high and mighty. He's not fooled into believing that he is greatly to be praised. He's not fooled into believing that this whole thing is all about him. But his posture demonstrates that his worship before a high and mighty God comes from a position of humility. When we rightly recognize who we are in the face of a holy and mighty God, what it does is it causes us to be driven low so that we might lift him high. Amen? Now look at this. He worships God not on the basis of the things that he's done in the life of the believer. And believe me, there are lots of things that we could worship him for, for things just in our lives. His grace to us, his love to us. For many of us, the salvation that he's richly bestowed upon us. But he worships God on the basis of who God is, not the passing subjectivity of his daily encounters and moods. Look here in verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The degree to which he worships God is matched with the degree to which God is great. Do you see that? How great is our God? Everybody say, unsearchably great. great. How great is our God? Everybody say, unsearchably great. Our God is so incredibly great that our minds can't even begin to approach recognizing an end in sight. Our God is so incredibly great that we might be able to describe him as being infinitely great. He says here, his ways are unsearchable. This isn't getting at the idea that we are unable to know this God, but firmly establishing that we aren't able to approach his greatness. This is how incredibly great our God is. 
that his greatness knows no end, that his greatness knows no limit, that his greatness, even in our own lives, is just beginning to get started in its display to us in our understanding of him. Now look what he does in 4 through 7. 4 through 7 is this amazing thing, and, and, and really it parallels what we saw yesterday. Yesterday we celebrated 50 years, and in that service we used a prayer from Bob Hamilton from the 25th anniversary service. And in that prayer, Bob Hamilton said, God, we pray that, that this, this next Sunday is better than today. And God, we pray that in 25 years we're in a better place than we are today, but only if you are there to bless us with your presence. That's what he said. And look what we find here in 4 through 7. It's that exact same thing working out. In verse 4 it says, One generation shall commend your works to another, shall declare your mighty acts. Look at verse 6. They shall speak of your might and awesome de- mighty and awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. Verse 7. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and I shall sing aloud of your righteousness. What we see in those verses, one generation commending another. People pouring out the goodness and the greatness of God to other people. This is what we see in that, okay? You remember in Titus 2 when we went through and we said the old men of this church should be imparting wisdom to the younger men, showing them what it is to live a life in full submission to Jesus Christ, and the older women in this church should be doing the same thing to the younger women. Do you remember when we did that, when we talked about that? This is what we see here. One generation shall commend you to another. When they look around and they recognize God and his faithfulness in their lives, his works, those things that he's done, they pass that on to others. Not their friends, not their, not their fellow people in their generation, but they go on to the next generation. So Jim Shuler, Jim Shuler goes over to Zach Ponce and says, Zach, let me tell you about the faithfulness of God in my life. Karen Bench says, Marie, let me tell you about the faithfulness of God in my life. And and, and so Marie's looking back up to Karen and she's building her up and Karen is pouring out her life and the faithfulness of God over the time that she's been alive to Marie and she's building her up. This is what we see. Our relationship with God, our understanding and interaction with him causes us to go to the next generation and say, let me tell you how good and great this God is. In the 20 plus years you've been alive, you've only been been able to scratch the surface, but me and my 80, 90, 100 years. God repeatedly proves himself to be faithful. This is the beauty of a multi-generational church that we are able, by virtue of having people in different stations and generations, that they can say to the younger, this is how he continued to be faithful. This is how he helped me to make it through it. I hear you've had a miscarriage. I hear your husband left you. I hear these bad things are happening to you. Can I tell you, God is faithful. Can I tell you, he'll... His grace will carry you through. Can I tell you, his kindness will carry you through. You just lost your job. I've lost my job. You just lost your spouse. You just lost your child. I endured those same things. Our God, he is faithful. He will carry you through. This is what we see here. Now, we looked a lot at the the they and the thems of one generation will carry, a people will pour forth. They're basically going to bubble up in this understanding and description of God. But look what he says I will do. Look what he says I will do. Verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. This is not the idea of Easter meditation where we seek to banish everything from our minds, but as a Christian gives themselves to the careful study of God, what it causes them to do is to focus and to meditate, to fill themselves up with the characteristics and attributes of God, where you say, God is good, God is gracious, God is mighty. And you think, how has he displayed his goodness? He demonstrates his goodness towards me and his kind beneficence towards me and extending to me salvation. 
He extends his kindness and his goodness and his love to the Israelites. Instead of eradicating a people, he uses them to be agents and ambassadors of his grace to those that they encounter. And that's what we see breaking out there in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 and on. He says, on your glorious work, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. We need to give ourselves, not to the passing glance of Scripture, as if you sat down and you said, man, I'm going to read the Bible in 72 hours. This, this heavy ingestion, like you're drinking the Bible from a fire hydrant. But what he pictures here is this intimate association with the Word of God. Where you read a verse, you, you read a passage, and you just think, our God in his greatness is unsearchable. And you really begin to plumb the depths of what that means in the lives of those around you, what it means in your own life. God, how are your ways unsearchable? This is the way that I've seen you in my experience. God, expand the horizons of my experience. God, expand the horizons that I'm, so that I might be able to know you and know your wondrous works. Well, look what he does here. He says, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, verse 7, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Our encounters with God make us worshipers. Our encounters with God make us worshipers. It's not our ability to have lyrics on a screen or words in a hymnal that make us worshipers. Do you hear that? The ability to become a worshiper of God is by an encounter with God. He makes his people worshipers. We don't make ourselves worshipers by entering into the correct liturgy, by singing the songs that we like, by singing songs we don't like, and becoming a martyr therein. We become worshipers by encounters with a holy and mighty and awesome God. He makes you a worshiper. And some of you, he will show you the depths of what it means to worship him from a pit. Some of you will be brought low so that in that place, you might finally quit exalting yourself and start exalting him. What he shows us here is that he will make his people worshipers. And some of us will be brought low so that we'll finally quit lifting up ourselves, those around us, and lift him up and worship him and him alone. Look how he continues in 8 through 12. He's going on to these descriptors and, and showing other ways from which we might worship God and understand him. He starts off, he says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Remember when Moses asked God, he said, God, I, I want to see you. Moses had incredible access to God. Moses, from these leftover imprints of God's glory upon his face when he would have audience with God. Moses, still, he wasn't satisfied with the way that he had known God in the past. He wanted to know God more. Do you get that? That is amazing. You and I are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and God is testifying to us about what is right and what is wrong and how we might live in righteousness. We are indwelt with the Spirit. Moses had direct encounters with God. He saw God in a fiery column. He saw God in a cloud. And still he said, I want to know you, and I want to know you more. And God said, if you were to see me, you would be laid low. You can't see me and live. But God gives him... This, this glance of himself in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Look at how God chooses to describe himself. It says, And the Lord passed him by and proclaimed. God begins to speak. He says, The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When God chooses to describe himself, he does so in terms of his kindness and his grace. When God chooses to reveal himself to Moses and show himself, he describes him in in these, these same words, this same example. He is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. When we recognize God is good, gracious, and merciful, we have no option but to worship him. An encounter with God drives us to the worship of God. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Both those things that God has made and humanity which he has created for himself and for his glory will ultimately give praise and honor to the king. Look what they say. They they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power and make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and glorious splendor of your kingdom. As we encounter God and he makes us into worshipers, this is what the Psalms has said is the eventuality. We long to tell other people about it. He says "They they will tell the children of men about you. When we encounter God, the degree to which you know God and worship God is in direct relation to to the degree to which you long to tell others about him. You know what we're going to do next Sunday? In an act and demonstration of worship and submission before God, we're gonna go forth from this place, praising him, worshiping him, as we knock on doors and encounter total strangers. That's what we do. That's what we do. Christianity is about living a life in total submission to Jesus Christ, and he calls us as worshipers of God to be faithful and obedient to him. And one of the ways we demonstrate that faithfulness and obedience is by worshiping him and sharing with others. Our encounters with God and worship, if they stop in singing, then we're missing it. Our encounters with God and worship drive us to tell others about him. Our faith is always other-centric, other-centric. It's always focused on other people. Verse 12, to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds. We want our brothers and sisters. We want our husbands and wives. We want our moms and dads and cousins, neighbors, checkers at Walmart. We want these people to know the greatness of our God, that he might move in salvation to change their hearts and make them worshipers of the one and of the true king. Amen? Look what he says here as we're drawing to the end of this. He's talking about God, and, and, and his first descriptor of him said, you're my God and my king. And this is a psalm attributed to David, and so either it's written by David or somebody in honor of David, but David is the king that, that they most frequently thought of when they're thinking of their king. And so you have David as this this high and exalted king that everybody sought to emulate. He's a man after God's own heart. And this is what he says here, that you are my God, you are my king. In, In essence, God is so much better than an earthly king. He's so much better than an earthly king. And his kingdom, we find here in verse 13, it endures. God will reign forever. His kingdom will endure Forever, It is an everlasting kingdom. It knows no end. 
Just as his greatness is unsearchable, so his kingdom knows no end. There is no line of demarcation where you come upon the barrier and say, God's kingdom ends here and another kingdom picks up. No, his kingdom continues on and on forever and ever. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Look what he says. Your dominion, your power, your ability to to exercise control, it endures throughout all generations. God in his greatness, God in his greatness has majesty that continues on forever and ever. A people who know him will be a people who worship him And we worship him, rightly recognizing his kingdom will not falter, his kingdom will not fail, it will endure forevermore. And this God whose kingdom will endure, he sent a son to be a sacrifice, and not a sacrifice that is passing away, not a sacrifice that is failing, but we recognize that it is a sacrifice too that endures. That his sacrifice endures. That, that just as God's kingdom endures forever, so too the sacrifice of the Son is an everlasting sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews gives us this. In Hebrews 10, picking up in verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They can never completely take away sins. But look at this. He says, but when Christ had offered for all time. When is that? For all time. A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. God sent his son to offer an enduring sacrifice. One sacrifice for all times. And when Jesus had done it, he came over and he sat down in a demonstration of his power, in a demonstration of his authority, and in a demonstration of the finality of that sacrifice. He sat down, waiting for that time of when his enemies should become a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God makes you holy in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And the sacrifice that is extended to you is able to take away your sins and take away the punishment of sins forevermore. God's kingdom endures. It is an everlasting kingdom. The sacrifice of his son endures. It is an everlasting sacrifice and a testament to God's faithfulness, his power, and his dominion. As we begin to look at the sacrifice and the Lord's Supper, as we take the bread together, we remember his body which was broken, which need never be broken again. And in the sacrifice of Jesus, he extends to us forgiveness. He extends to us redemption, the right to be made holy and approved before God. In a few moments, we're going to pass out the bread. I ask that you take and hold so that we're all able to, to take it together. And in these moments, I ask that you begin to reflect upon God and the enduring sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. We pick back up Psalm 145 in verse 14. If 1 through 13 can be said to describe God and his transcendence, that he is holy other, that he is wholly unique, he's lifted up, that he's, he's, he's completely beyond our ability to, to rationally put our minds around, then 14 through 21 can be said to display God in his eminence and his close presence in our lives. 1 through 13 gives us the picture of this God who is incredibly vast, who's incredibly all-powerful, 
But 14 through 21 gives us the idea that this God is so close, so present, and so incredibly loving and invested and involved in each and every person's life. Look how it begins. It says, The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Do you see the picture that's displayed there? God, God finds all those people falling forward. He finds all those falling forward, all those falling forward have the ability and God to cry out and say, I am, I am falling. Would you stop me? Would you arrest my motion? And he reaches out and he has the ability to do so. And he comes to all who are bowed down, right? All who the pressures of life have crushed them, have made them small, have made them feel overwhelmed. And he has the ability to raise them up in that. We stop there and we are captivated by that display of power, by that display of personal investment in the lives of his creation. But when you couple this, friends, when you couple this and recognize that in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, he did that in Jesus. Philippians 2 starts off and it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he had equality with God, did not consider it a thing to be grasped greedily held on to, but he lowered himself, taking the form of a servant. God in the person of Jesus allowed himself to be brought low. Continuing to read there in Philippians, it tells us that he allowed himself to be put to death, to be put to death in the most grotesque, grotesque, horrid, uh, terrible way imaginable and available to them at his time, death on a cross. And there God incarnate, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, died and he was taken off that cross and he was entered into a tomb. But there God came along and he raised up the one, the son, the rightful king, the one who was bowed down for you and for me and he raised him up. And that same thing that God did in Jesus, he desires to do in the life of each and every man, woman, and child in Christ again. He comes near to those who are falling, to those who are bowed down, and he raises them up. Text says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them food in their season. Matthew 6 gives us this beautiful picture about anxiousness, about worry. And in that passage, (laughs) Jesus is talking to them. He says, therefore, starting in verse 25, I tell you not to be anxious about your life or what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about the body, what you'll put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at this connection he makes. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to the span of your life? And why are you being anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Neither do they toil nor spin. But yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God is giving and sustaining life to those that rightly recognize, recognize him as the reigning king and to all those who live lives in willful disobedience to him. This is the goodness, the graciousness of God. That he doesn't just strike all of us off the face of the earth, but he chooses to move and to work even among a fallen people, and he bids us come. To all who are falling, to all who are bowed down, And he graciously gives provision for all. Look how he describes God in his closeness, in his 
his eminence. Verse 16, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. You recognize in the hand of God are all the desires that you should rightly have in your life. All the, the, the true and righteous desires that anyone might ever be able to have are only fully realized in the hand of God. And we, we are creative. We, we create for ourselves all kinds of illicit desires, but we right, rightly recognize that the desires that are in God's hands are the only true and acceptable desires for all of humanity. And what is that in his hand? It is fully him. The utmost desire that we should have in our lives is to be a part of God, to know him, to be saved by him. Our world masquerades and and lets us know that there are desires aplenty. It tries to insert false desires in our lives and said, only you may be satisfied in sex, only you may be satisfied in money, only you may be satisfied in power, only you may be satisfied in security, in protection, in isolationism. God looks at it and says, only that you may be satisfied in me. He holds out his hand that you might be satisfied in him. Now look how he describes him. Look how the Psalms describes God in 17 through 20. He says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. He pairs God's kindness and his righteousness. God's righteousness is what keeps him in relationship with those who are redeemed. He is not fickle. He upholds our relationship. Even when we are unfaithful, he remains true to his word. He is righteous. It is his very characteristic. He is righteous. He is holy other. But he is kind. In his beneficence, he works in the midst of fallen humanity to bring us to him, to call us to him, to build us up, to raise up all who are falling and all who are bowed low. This is the amazing thing. Paul gets this. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, Paul describing how this, how this works out. Look at 21. He says, For our sake, he made him, he made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. God bestows righteousness on humanity when they are paired with Christ. When we find our desires in God, when we cry out to him and say, we are falling, we are fallen, we are bowed down, we need you to lift us up, we need you to come and to save us from our sin, from our selfishness, from our pride, from our vainglory, we need you to save us from ourselves, he does and he bestows on you not your own merited righteousness, which is worthless, he bestows on you Christ's unmatchable perfect righteousness which could never be owned or bestowed upon you because of some good thing that you have done and you have the righteousness of God look what he says the Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth to every person who cries out to God he is near to them you know for me this is the great sadness in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ recognizing its availability, but the distance of so many hearts. Recognizing the availability and coming to someone and said, do you recognize that there is a God who created you? He created you to know him, that he holds out his hand and he bids you come. And they look at that and they say, no, not me. No, not me. 
It's one thing for a stranger to do that. But it's a completely other thing when it's a family member, when it's someone you know. When you are investing yourself into their lives, you long for them to know Jesus. You long for them to call to him, to recognize that they are indeed falling, they are bowed down, that only their real true desires can be found and established and met in him. When we are invested in the lives of these people, this is what we do. As worshipers of Jesus Christ, we are invested in the lives of all those around us, not according to socioeconomic status, not according to color, not according to whether we enjoy their character or not or their their company or not. We are invested in the lives of fallen humanity. Why? Because our God is. And he bids them come. He doesn't say, get your life together, take a bath, take a shower, put on some clean clothes and come. No, he says, come as you are and recognize in Jesus you'll be made holy, clean, and different. The Lord is near to all who call on him. He fulfills the desires of all who fear him. He hears their cries and he saves them. What we are seeking to do is rightly recognize God as who he is. He is holy, other, and transcendent. And in that, we have this reverential respect and awe. And in the Psalms, this refers to it as fear before God. When you rightly recognize God for who he is, it tempers your understanding of how he loves you. This great, powerful being that spun everything into existence, that's the one that calls you come. Not some limping fool who had a crazy experiment that went awry and he's grasping at straws for how to put the whole thing back together again and, and bids you, please come back to my team. No, it, it is still this great and powerful God who is over all. He created everything and he bids you, come. He's near to all who call on him. He fulfills the desires of all who fears him. He hears their cry and saves them. And this is the great promise here. The God who hears your call, the God who comes near to you, the God who lifts you up can cause your foot placement to be sure. Because look what he says in verse 20. It says, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. God lays it out clearly and simply for us to see. All those who find their peace and security in Jesus will be preserved. They will endure just as his kingdom endures, just as his kingship endures. But all those who put their trust and trust and faithfulness in anything other than Jesus, you will perish. This isn't good news for you. This is news hopefully to shock you from your place of complacency, to shock you from the disillusionment of life whether you are a self-made man or woman, whether you have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and done so incredibly well in life that everybody looks at you and says, you're such an amazing person. I wish I could be like you. People can tell you that from now until the day you die, but the eternal truth of God is if you don't come to him as he is, you will perish. God will respect that. And you will spend, the Bible says, eternity in hell, separated from the love of God. I don't say this to be unloving. I don't say this to be unkind. I'm telling you this because this is the truth found in God's word. What we do as worshipers of Jesus Christ is call others to worship as well. Look how this ends. 
this amazing psalm that began. And he said, great is the Lord, my God and King, and greatly to be praised. And he's, in, he's telling other people about it. One generation commends another. They tell all the children of man. Look at how it ends. This tremendous encounter of God through his transcendence and his eminence, through his holy otherness and his closeness to humanity. This incredible God who bids all who are falling down stand up, who takes all who are bowed low and stands them up. This tremendous God who hears the cries of people and and comes to them. This tremendous God who lifts us all up. This tremendous God. Look at how the Psalms responds to him in verse 21. He says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Basically, as I've come to know God, what it causes me to do to worship him. As I have come to know God, as I have come to know Jesus, what it drives me to do is to give my life in full bore surrender and worship to him. Whether it is down on my knees, with my arms up in the air, what our encounters with God cause us to do is to worship him. But look at this. Even in his worship, he bids others come. Even in his worship, he doesn't find a place of familiarity. He doesn't find a place where he says, this is good for me, and I'll handle the rest of these later. Even in his place of worship, even in his place of worship, he says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his name forever and ever. Even and especially in our place of worship, as we worship God, we bid others come. As we worship God and come to know him and be worshipers of him, we can do nothing else but bid others come to join us in the resound and in the reign of the king. Amen? Amen. What we do at this table, what we do at the Lord's table is display, is give testimony that he has made us worshipers of the one and true king. What we do at this table is boldly proclaim his death until he comes. And we bid others come. We don't safeguard it. We don't fence it off. We don't submit people to a test. What we do at this table is worship the one and true king and bid others to come and worship him as well. In a few moments, we will pass out the cup. I'd ask that you would take and hold it and meditate on this thought that God has made you a worshiper for his kingdom, not your own. And as we are taking this together, we rightly recognize that there is only one true God to worship. And we are focusing our thoughts on him and his kingdom.